Hey, I'm Sean. And I'm Jesse. And, and we're, we're the, the DMs, DMs of Vancouver. Vancouver. We're two newish DMs who are still getting the hang of the whole DM thing. So we sit down with a friend every couple of weeks and pick their brain on their approach to DMing. So come along as we figure out how to help our players have the best time possible at the gaming table. Today's episode is brought to you by Adventure Dice. Adventure Dice is an online dice shop based here in Vancouver, selling a variety of dice and other gaming accessories. Personally, I'm a big fan of their rolling trays and the Grounded Pixie Dice Set. Adventure Dice ships for free anywhere in Canada, and if you use the code DMV at checkout, you can get a 10% discount on your purchase. That's DMV for a nice discount on your new tabletop gear. Find the shop at adventuredice.ca and roll for adventure! Hey folks, welcome to another episode of DMs of Vancouver. Today we're talking to Travis Vengroff. How's it going, Travis? Great, thanks for having me on the show. Hey, thanks for agreeing to come on. Um, so where will would our listeners maybe recognize you from? Uh, you might recognize me from a couple of different things. Uh, most likely, you've uh, if you're a D&D person, our show is Dark Dice. It is a lot of fun. It's creepy. It's, uh, it's dark. And I'm the DM on that one. Um, I also am a voice in a bunch of other podcasts like The White Vault. I'm actually the sound designer and producer of that show, as well as Liberty, which has also the D&D game within the same feed, Liberty Vigilance, which is a lot of fun. All right. And uh, tell us a little bit about your history playing tabletop games. So when I was eight years old, I was on a bus and this kid who was older than me is like, hey, do you want to play a game? Because we have like a, a 40 minute bus commute each way and it's really boring. It's like, okay. And like, do you have like a board game or something? I don't know how it's going to work on a bus. And he's like, no. So we basically played like a storyteller D&D thing, no rolling. Uh, there was some number guessing to try and like randomize elements, you have to, like pick a number between one and 10 or something. And uh, from there, um, we, we did that for years and it grew and a lot of our friends started playing. And I, uh, the older kid moved away and then I wound up being the DM for like my group of friends. And eventually somewhere around middle school or high school, we transitioned to 3E. Um, which we were really reluctant to do because in our town, D&D was considered satanic. And I actually lost a couple of friends that way because their parents were like, no, they can't play this game. It's Satan and influences and stuff. And then uh, eventually um, the 3E became 3.5 in Pathfinder. Uh, Pathfinder was a lot of fun. And then 5E came along and was amazing. And uh, it's even easier than most board games that I played and my friends have played. And have kind of never looked back since. It's it's funny that you mentioned the the satanic panic part of D and D's history because I actually just read an article recently uh, from a Christian website talking about how like trying to explain why Critical Role like why their Kickstarter was so popular, why D and D is popular, and they're talking about because it helps people build community and relationships and stuff like this with a group of people where you're not playing to win you're playing to tell a fun story and yeah. as somebody who grew up catholic and them talking about like how that relates to the church i thought that was kind of interesting they did did a really good job of like trying to explain this weird D thing to people who have never heard of it especially people who are come from a religious background that's awesome and yeah like i'm i'm a little bit on the older end of uh I just passed 20, so I'm like 32, and, and back in the day when, when I was younger, it was still like really taboo and, sort of, and extremely nerdy when nerdy wasn't a, a fun word to use. 
I mean, I had some holdovers of the Satanic Panic with some of my friends when I started playing when I was 17 in like 2004. It still it still kind of lingers in some communities and some families who, you know, don't know any better, yeah. I think. Um, I actually find your like the specifics of how you started playing really interesting because that that's one we haven't gotten before. Usually it's I went to my friend's house or something and then we went from there, but like the fact that you were playing basically a like a diceless system just on the bus to kill time sounds really great. Yeah, it it was a lot of fun and we even maintained the same world and the continuity over 20 something plus years and it's it's been goofy cuz you'll have like my really horror and more mature elements but then you'll encounter like some really goofy stuff that's still left over from childhood like a talking cow genie or something <laughs> so it's it's a little bit juxtaposed in places but depending on who i'm playing with or you know what the circumstances like my podcast is always really serious so i try and like skirt around the super silly stuff i think i think this brings us into one of the things we wanted to talk to you about um which is your podcast um i've listened to dark dice i haven't had a chance to listen to liberty but you do something uh very interesting that I don't think most other actual plays do in that you you cut out a lot of stuff and add in narration. Can you tell us a bit about how you kind of came to the, to the decision to do that? Uh, yeah, um, it was sort of a joint decision. So all the podcasting I do is with my wife, uh, Caitlin Stats, and she writes the shows that we create. So this was sort of designed originally as like a one-off with the cast of one of our other shows, The White Vault, and it wound up growing into something a bit bigger and a lot more interesting. But our whole thing is, you know, we've got these people who are basically horror actors. We have this setting and we want to make a horror story basically with them um, an interactive storytelling. Like you said, everyone comes together and crafts a story. Uh, but I've listened to a lot of horror podcasts uh, that are in the D and D spectrum. And when you have like a lot of table talk, it kind of pulls you out of the horror and horror becomes sort of the dressing of the comedy and the table talk, as opposed to actively having horrific or, or scary elements. So my goal in this was to create a scary D&D uh, &D podcast. So having it be more narrative driven was really kind of a must in order to keep it together. So the players are actors. They've all acted and none of them had met before, but they have that sort of background. And it was really driven toward this, you know, very minimal nonsense uh, idea. And there are moments where we do kind of break down and laugh at things, but they're, they're few and far between. And they're almost always in character. Try to keep that, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I think it's, it's probably easier a little bit with, with actors who can turn that moment of laughter into a character moment is a little bit easier because they've probably got more experience with it. But one of the things that I'm I'm curious about is the the fact that it's a more you say it's a more horror focused podcast. How do you make that work with D and D? Because D and D is kind of more of a empowerment thing. Like you know you're meant to you you level up, you get um, more powers or more more powerful weapons or neat feats that let you do all sorts of things how do you because my understanding is that at its, at its core horror is kind of about that being disempowered about like what it's like to be somebody who doesn't have power against some powerful creature or elder god or you know a <laughs> slasher you know trying to kill you at some summer camp or whatever it is how do you how do you mix those two things the D, &D and and the horror so it's it's totally different from like my my 
home games that I play with my friends. It's a completely different idea. The intent is to tell a story. The players understand that they're, uh, the goal is, my original goal is to kill them all off, but I, I sort of, I didn't necessarily succeed as quickly as I'd have liked to without spoiling anything. <laughs> um, but there, the idea is not, again, to empower them and make them feel awesome. It's to kind of solve this mystery uh, and survive this horror, uh, the haunted house kind of perspective. They're going in, uh, they're getting weaker with time instead of stronger with time. I put a lot of uh, gamification elements into weakening their characters and making it so they couldn't rest. So the whole thing of Dark Dice is they can't sleep because this monster is hunting them in their sleep and won't let them go to sleep. Uh, as they're gaining levels of exhaustion, there's a doppelganger in their party, and, and as the characters get killed by it, they're now playing the doppelganger. So it's uh, there are a few different elements that kind of tie together to, to weaken them instead of strengthen them. And I've really tried, tried heavily to avoid um, any focus on, on leveling. And that also comes from the storyteller stuff that I used to do before I went to 3.5, again, because levels weren't a thing. It was just, can you do the thing? Yes or no. Um, so really uh, pushing story front and, and kind of experience secondarily. And, and horror doesn't have to be a monster. One of the characters is fighting against like memory loss. Um, you know, his wife lost his memories and he's out there trying to, to find something that might bring those memories back, for instance. And that's pretty horrific for the character. Um, for himself. Uh, one other element uh, to it that is uh, a gamification that we created was sanity. And as they fail checks on the sanity, it's like an extra seventh attribute, um, or it could use wisdom if you don't want to, but we focused really hard on this sanity attribute. And as people fail sanity, the information they receive is less reliable until it becomes, like if they exceed 50 uh, damage in this trait. Um, it's like its own separate hit bar statistic that doesn't, it's not hit points though, it's uh, stress damage. And if they exceed 50, the information gets really unreliable. If they exceed 100, they're very likely to attack allies instead of enemies in a combat, that sort of thing. I also really um, forgot to mention this earlier, but combat is really slow. So I cut it all into just like swift narrative bits. I don't think you would have heard that in the first episode, but uh, I really uh, don't enjoy listening to combat in actual plays. So that was just a huge. Uh, creative decision there. It's like, oh, we can just have it a short bit of narrative. That works. Yeah, I think that's the the few actual plays that I've listened to that I've actually enjoyed are the ones that do that. They do most of their heavy editing is around the combat to turn it turn something that at the table took you know an hour into something that took in the podcast mm, ten minutes. Because yeah. as fun as it can be to it's one of those things that it's fun to do. It's not fun to listen to or watch. It's a lot of repetitive information too. And you're waiting and there's a lot of like dice roll. Okay. what it say? This is the number. This is the number. Does it hit? Yes. Like you've just gone through five exchanges to hear like character hits thing or misses thing. And often not a lot of actual plot happens in a combat. There's plot as a result of things that happen, but a lot of the time, and you know, that with varying degree, like a lot of the information in a fight is not actually relevant to the overall story. I generally skip it in most shows and then I'm just like, I'll catch up on the far end. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so there might be something like occasionally there might be something that happens like, you know, a character gets knocked out and everybody, everybody's worried about them or something like that. But yeah, like usually the interesting stuff is what leads up to the combat. And then after the combat, um, one of the things that I'm curious about with regards to, to horror is 
uh, is tension because that's kind of like one of the hallmarks of, of horror is having that that tension that that builds and uh, either resolves in a way that you weren't expecting uh, or very suddenly like a jump scare um, or resolves in a way that you were you were expecting like the thing that you were expecting was like yeah the killer was there and they just weren't where you thought they were um, how do you handle that building of tension in in D&D where for example like somebody who wants to do a perception check to see if there's something hiding like they want to try and listen or use their senses to to try and figure out where their uh, pursuer might be coming from or something like that how do you work tension into the mechanics of D&D so foreshadowing is huge um you know you can you can bump into a dragon and it's like oh it's a dragon but if you have elements of this creature that you smell, that you, you know, can see visible differences in the earth around you or, you know, burn marks, missing uh, sheep or cows even, you know, these elements of foreshadowing really build up to a moment of meeting something. Uh, that it's, it's incredibly helpful as opposed to just sort of stumbling through a dungeon and kicking in the door and you see a thing. Uh, having a lot of intentional design like that where characters will find information about a thing and they also can maybe glean a little bit of information uh, uh, about what the monster is before they see it and sort of mentally prepare themselves to uh, to fight this thing. Um, like, you know, getting a mirror ready for a Medusa, that sort of stuff. Uh, one of the other elements that I really enjoy for tension, kind of not like, you know, you've got this big build and then you see this monster. I never say the name of the monster. And they're like, oh, you encounter a zombie. It's always a description. It's uh, it's a set of attributes that compile the creature. Because the minute you say zombie, they're thinking like, oh, I know its hit points. Oh, I know these statistics. And in combat, not saying like, oh, it, you know, it it slams you for five damage. You know, describing the attack. You know, its teeth rake across your chainmail, and some of them fall out in sort of disgusting bits and stuff like that. But even if you're not particularly grotesque, you can describe agility or strength and these different attributes as opposed to just calling it out for what it is. Was that sort of your what you're trying to get? Uh, <laughs> tongue twister. Was that sort of what you were trying to ask and answer to the question? Yeah, and I, I think the um, that method of building tension through foreshadowing, I think, is is great. So I think you're right. Like I think a lot of DMs are they're really excited about being able to showcase either, you know, the, the really fun, powerful monsters from the, the monster manual, but they, they kind of ruin things a little bit by like, you know, you, like you said, you uh, bust down the door and there's a dragon. Whereas having something where, you know, as they're approaching its lair and they, they don't know that they're approaching its lair, like, um, depending on what kind of dragon it is. Yeah. Like there's a, a section of the forest that's just been cleanly burned away or melted away. If it's a black dragon or, uh, that's like frozen and has, you know, all the trees are covered in glittering ice. If it's a, an ice dragon or something like that. And like using all these descriptions to like build up and, um, like showcase how powerful the monster is without having to get into combat with it. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a brilliant way to build tension because, you know, your players are seeing all the effects of what this thing can do and starting to wonder like, 
are are we all gonna die? Is this is this what's happening now? We're all gonna die now, right? I think that's my favorite part of the the book campaigns. Like Out of the Abyss does that really well. I know it's it's a difficult book to run without some help. Um, like the Elven Tower is a great guide for it, but like it has some really beautiful foreshadowing in that in exactly that regard. And and some of the other ones do as well that I've played. The thing that I think is really interesting about foreshadowing is that for a lot of the big monsters in the monster manual there is information and tools that can help you with that too. Like dragons and specifically, they you know they have layer abilities, but there's also information about what the area around their layer looks like, how maybe some of the weather has changed because there's a thunder-based dragon there or something like that. It's, um, it's, it's uh, information that's already provided for you. You just got to make use of it. And it's something I think you can still use with, uh, you know, not the, the epic ancient dragon that your level 20 characters are going to face it's something that you can do with with other monsters that you know a party of level one or two characters are going to face it's just you have to just think about like oh if it's a if there's a i don't know horde of zombies or um kobolds or whatever it is just figuring out like what would they leave behind like what 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 would you see after they attacked and how would you use that to build tension I particularly enjoyed, uh, I was reading recently the Monster Manual uh, last night and like the shambling mound. <laughs> when you read through that, it's like this thing is terrifying. <laughs> and there's ways to, to kind of weave it into any location. And it, it gives a pretty good descriptor of like what you might see and you know what it might feel like. And then kind of there are indicators. Um, another creature called like a Nothic. It smells like sulfur. Or not not the Nothics. The, um, eh, it's an ooze thing from uh, Mordecai's Tome of Foes. And it's like just terrifying it's just the only indication is it smells like sulfur and it's got like these tendrils it leaves behind in the oozy disgustingness is that the ooze thing that like pretends to be regular people yeah it starts with an n or an m i don't remember what it's called but i i used it against uh the people in dark dice briefly and it's it was a lot of fun because they were at what they thought was a bathhouse and they thought they were going into the water and it wasn't the water. It was the creature. And there's a dwarf sitting in the middle of the pool and it's like, oh, come friends, leave your armor at the door. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's an effective use of that monster. Yeah, I think it, it, it really comes down to build, yeah, building tension by either like like we've been talking about having those descriptions of what the area is like. Or figuring out ways, like with that ooze, to to really twist things on their head. Because I think that can also be... Um, I think in D&D it might be a little bit easier to achieve for most DMs. Is Rather than trying to build a whole bunch of tension, is to set up a scene like, oh, they're in a bathhouse and they're just getting into the water. And then completely flipping things on their head so that rather than trying to build tension, you just have a moment of pure confusion as to what the hell is going on. And it's called an oblex, O-B-L-E-X. I just found it. Those are, they're, they're oh, okay. for every level. Oh. <laughs> get bigger and, and more scary. But yeah. Yeah, that was the, the one that I think they created as part of a kid's make-a-wish or something. Exactly. Like it was. Yeah. But yeah, that I mean, that's the kind of cool thing about D&D is you can put a lot of work into foreshadowing and leading up to thing and creating like leading up to a monster and creating tension that way. But you can also have the kind of terrifying moment as it dawns on people that like they've been tricked. Cause I think it's about that, that loss of control in, in D and D because in like when you're watching a horror movie, like 
it's about the loss of control of the character that you're watching on on the screen like they're they're you know maybe not powerless but more helpless than they'd like to be in a situation and i think figuring out ways to do that in D&D they yeah, like not having to rely on tension if you're not good at descriptions like doing this like flipping things on their head in a moment of like i thought we were in a bathhouse and now we're beaten eat <laughs> there's a book called tome of challenges also it's a it's a 3e book but it is incredibly relevant to 5e and you can transition things out very easily it's basically a bunch of indications of like puzzles and it's like okay well, you're encountering like five orcs, but what, how's this, how's this going to be really challenging? Oh, it's a rope bridge. And by the way, there's orcs on both sides of the rope bridge and they're waiting for you to try and pass. <laughs> like, so they're going to try and cut the rope bridge while you're going across, or there's actual puzzles, um, like hedge mazes with uh, displacer beasts in them or other, so, some of them are really crazy and they're, they're more logic based as opposed to randomization uh, that just, they take an encounter with kobolds to like another level because the kobolds are impersonating a dragon and they found this thing that looks enough like a dragon in the right light and they have uh, the ability to shoot fire out of its mouth. So, you know, can they trick the party and, and scare them away from the treasure? Things like that. And that was called the Tome of Challenges? Yeah, uh, Tome of Challenges. It's a three book. It's it's my favorite um, and I go to it every time. <laughs> like it starts with for, for every level too. Like there's a section entirely on different ways to use mimics um, creatively because they don't always have to be a treasure chest. They could be, you know, a door and the doorway might speak to you because it might have had an intelligence potion if you want it to be a slightly higher level challenge. And it can actually talk in common now. And you've got this mimic speaking to you in common, trying to tell you that it used to be an elf and it's been turned into a bookshelf for a doorway. And, you know, but when you look at it, the letters aren't actually elven. They're just kind of fuzzy. <laughs> I, th I think one of the things I, I saw online that I really liked was the idea of baby mimics, which are coins. They disguise themselves as coins. Oh my gosh. So they get, so they like, it's kind of like the whole thing with birds transporting seeds from plants to far away because they eat the fruit or whatever. Whereas like a baby mimic disguises itself as a coin in an actual chest of coins. And the idea was that like you use that to like cheat the players out of like a giant treasure trove because the, the mimic ate a bunch of gold and now they've got only 10 gp instead of you know a thousand but having something like a baby mimic where it feeds on the player slowly over time because they've been carrying around a mimic and they didn't know it um but i was also thinking like that idea of the the kobolds that you mentioned that try to pretend that they've got a dragon is i think like there are probably ways that you can use lots of monsters but i think part of D&D is getting past the way that we think about some of these monsters because like when I think about goblins I think of gerblins from Adventure Time like I'm not I, I, I don't really think of them as scary things anymore because it kind of everybody treats them as the joke monsters now like but done right they could be really terrifying because they're, th they're creatures that are really good at hiding um, or you take kobolds like those are things that I think not as well known but people do tend to still view them as a little bit of a joke but you could definitely build a dungeon that's full of tension because you don't know where the next trap is because kobolds are master trap makers. For sure. So there is actually a level six adventure by Winghorn Press. It's called A Low Crater. And the entire thing is basically like some paladins got their butts kicked by by goblins or kobolds. Like they're, they're level one or, or half level encounters. But just the way that they're crafted, it's, it's actually like a six level encounter. <laughs> nice. So I, I totally agree with that. 
And also, there's a book of challenges. I was incorrect. It's not a tome. It's okay. a book. Book of challenges. Sorry. I'm sure that must be on the DMs Guild at this point. They, it has to be. I feel like they've put almost every three, like 3E and 3.5 book up there by now. So you were talking earlier about the sanity system you use. And I'm yeah. wondering like how, like what your process for making that system was and if you've kind of made your uh, made other 5e kind of based systems so uh the sanity thing I'm, I'm in the process of releasing a book it'll hopefully be out in the next month or so called domain of the nameless god and it's basically the the campaign that i'm running for dark dice with the sanity system also and, and a couple of other fun magic items and monsters uh the creation process of sanity um again is just to keep the reliability of information uh, not entirely sure because when your players don't know the answer to something or when they're surprised by something, it's unsettling. So I have like a bunch of random charts like uh, of things that can happen after their sanity hits a certain mark. Like they'll enter a room, they'll do something, rocks fall, everybody dies, not necessarily rocks. And then suddenly they enter that room again and no one has memory of going into this room before except the player who's crazy. Okay. Or another example is um, they'll be walking and they'll be seeing things and they'll have a monster attack them. And uh, everyone's, you know, let's say they're, they have, uh, they're asleep. Everyone's asleep. The person on watch, monster attacks. They fight the monster. They wake everybody up. Uh, the damage they do to the monster on the first round, because the monster misses them. You roll some dice, you look scary, but the monster doesn't hit them. But uh, the damage they cause to the monster is actually caused to other player characters. And there is no monster when everyone else wakes up. So making them doubt the information they're given as they kind of start to lose it is the, the idea behind the sanity mechanic. And I have like a bunch, a lot of creepy ideas along that, that vein of just throwing something. Maybe you'll think one of the player characters with you is a doppelganger, or maybe you think the chest is a monster, uh, you know, mimic. Um, or, and you'll be slightly paranoid of these things. Uh, but it's not like telling the player, like, you're paranoid of this thing. It's just giving them enough information to think that there's something wrong. How do you, I guess my question is when you have something like, oh, they were fighting a monster and it turns out they were actually attacking their, their sleeping companions. How do the other players react to that? The ones that are getting hurt. So they're, uh, if they're actors and like our, our, you know, our show the purpose of the show is to have them be confrontational and their backgrounds and backstories are woven in a way to have them not trust each other within my like my home campaigns when i'm playing with people at home it's very different they find it really amusing because they're like they're going into a haunted house and the goal of going into a haunted house in real life is to have fun and you know you're, you're gonna get scared a little bit so when one person you know thinks they see something and they attack a player character like oh man that something happened to them they saw this thing and they're all in on the kind of cosmic joke of what it is so it's it's more of like a, oh man i'm glad this didn't happen to me and they're not really mad at the player uh, or anything it's it's more of like a we've got to be on our toes and kind of um that that grinning smile of like man something's happening this is there's madness afoot <laughs> Alrighty, because I was, I was just curious because i think it's one of the things that's kind of a tricky line to walk as a DM is that taking control away from the players. Cause like if you sure. ask a player, like, do you want to hurt your, your fellow players characters? They're going to be like, not, 
not particularly. Well, hopefully, if you've got good players. <laughs> um, but uh, if you like tricking them into hurting the other player characters, like taking away some of their control so they're doing something without knowing it. Yeah, I I just think it's something that, I guess for me, I'd be worried about doing it because I'd be so worried that the, my players would be like, this sucks. We're hurt. We're constantly hurting each other. Don't want to play anymore. Oh no, no. You have to. It's it's all about preparation. Like again, setting the scene. Like, hey guys, we're gonna do a, a horror thing. This one session is gonna be kind of scary. Get ready for some crazy hijinks. You know, uh, little dolls that'll maybe come to life at night or uh, werewolves and that kind of stuff. Right. So it's not something you just spring on your players. Yeah. It, there's there's a lot of preparation that goes into it. I wouldn't run a horror campaign if I didn't know everybody or if everyone wasn't like, you know, ready to, to play a horror campaign, I'd probably run something more lighthearted and kind of more fun. Like the wild sheep chase one that we played recently, which is crazy and amazing, but stuff like that. If that makes sense. It, there's a lot of mental prep and on other stuff I've worked on also, uh, I actually built an entire five E, uh, sci-fi slash post-apocalyptic. Um, I don't know if you call it like, uh, core rulebook system for the Liberty world called Liberty After. It uses 5e rules and you can play two variants or you can mix the variants. You can be like the sci-fi people in this sort of um, city of the future and there's different ways of presenting yourself. You can be like someone who's really smart, someone who's really tough, but your goal is to work within the confines of this military state to better the state. And beyond the state, there's this post-apocalyptic anarchy sort of gang run and uh, there's different classes like scavenger or you can be with a gang or you can be kind of you know a, a person for hire uh, who maybe is a tough guy or a gal or kind of anything in between there's a lot of cultural ideas but again it's uh, less of a focus on leveling in this one and high tension for easy death so hit points are pretty low uh, because it's sort of weird when, like, okay, I pull a gun and hit the guy and shoot the guy with the gun. And then, you know, you shoot him in the head. Uh, he takes eight damage. You have to do that five or six more times to kill him. So hit points are pretty low in the system. And it also, uh, as a result of that, it increases the the agency and power of non-combat build characters. Because it's not intended to be like a hack and slash uh, marauder style adventure necessarily though it can be done that way if that makes sense yeah this this actually sounds really interesting to me because i know uh i think in the past we've talked to some people who've kind of criticized 5e for and, and dungeons and dragons in general for being like low lethality um but i like i like the idea that the system is kind of usable and flexible enough that you can just modify it slightly to change that um like um for the liberty rule set are, is that something you're going to publish or you've published or is it was it just kind of a custom thing it was custom for me for probably 10 years and then i just published it on drive through rpg uh about six months ago i'm particularly proud of it and uh it's i started writing the system when uh d20 modern was a thing trying to use that open gaming license and basically scrapped everything uh, so instead of like classes, you basically pick your body type. Um, you can be tough, agile, intellectual, or charismatic. And uh, then you pick your background, which is your occupation. And your occupation influences a lot more like a class, if that makes sense. 
So you get like archetype abilities, which are again, like class abilities, and then your occupation will give you the other half of the abilities you want. So you can be a tough guy and be a scientist that, that works. It's totally valid. Um, or a tough gal and be a scientist. You don't have to pick intellectual and, you know, min-max to be the best at what you want to be because um, different people have different strengths and weaknesses. It's kind of the idea behind it. So what was the system called again, if people are looking for it on DriveThruRPG? Uh, Liberty Efter, A-F-T-E-R. All right, thank you. Absolutely. And we did a playthrough of it for our, our podcast for uh, Liberty Vigilance, which was a lot of fun. So... So you say you kind of like took 5e, the open gaming license, and and modified it a little bit. Were there other things that you had to to modify to get it to fit into the idea of the system that you were trying to build? Uh, I I did. Um, Wisdom is kind of a dump stat when there's no spells. Uh, so I had to make that the shooting statistic. You know, so you, when you use a, a firearm as opposed to a bow and arrow, that's now your like focus stat. So it's like, okay, I need to have good focus. So I can aim and, you know, not pull a trigger and pull the gun to the far right or left uh, as I'm doing so. Also, I, I did actually uh, work with some of the older open gaming license stuff to try and figure out, like, abilities. Um, so tough, agile, intellectual, and charismatic don't feel the same. When you get your special abilities, it's kind of uh, like picking feats, as it were, from, from 3E or, or Pathfinder. So you can take like damage reduction or you can make it so when you attack, you can basically crit when you hit somebody. Uh, you, so you deal the maximum number of damage. Um, but if you miss that attack, they get an attack against you. Things like that. Okay. And um, I'm trying to think there was also a lot of fluff that had to go into it. I had to combine basically a DMG with a player's handbook and a monster manual. I guess that's that is something I'm a little bit more interested in because I'm, I've I've seen some RPGs on drive through RPG and on not so much on the DMs Guild. I don't spend a ton of time there, but people who are building, uh, you know, a system and for some it's some systems it is just the rules. Like if you look at uh, Fate, for example, that system is really more about just the rules that you can use to tell any kind of story. And they have examples of telling a, you know, fantasy high epic adventure and also a more down to earth, you know, beat cop kind of story. Um, what kind of, of fluff did you have to put together for, for these rules? Cause I think that's what I'm really interested to hear about. Uh, well, within another two weeks or so, there's going to be a, an update of the book and it's going to include an extra 70 pages of fluff. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There's also a history book that comes with it when you purchase the book, Um, like literally just kind of a a backstory from the uh, military state's perspective. So it's very biased and very colored to, uh, to the way that you're supposed to think if you're from that uh, brainwashed society. Um, But Liberty I've been working on since I was in my early twenties. And uh, so like 12, ish years and I've been building kind of the backstory of what it's supposed to be and doing a lot of research and trying to get the the science and the science fiction hard enough to scratch a diamond you know that really fine-tuning it I would say for fluff wise what we have something to the effect of uh, 30 pages of deities and I don't mean like you know it's 30 pages of information on different deities multiple pantheons to pick from 
and kind of ones that are worshipped from worshipping like the leader of the uh, the military state as being a god, which is some weird people have this belief, to the different cultists beyond the wall worship dark gods. And why would they do that? Why would you willingly worship something that's evil? And the answer is, well, power. So what powers would you want? That sort of stuff. And how do we make this believable? What, if, what do these you know, cannibal murderers do on their off time? Well, maybe they like spinning hair into roving and make clothing, you know, or things like that. Or maybe they go out and drink. Maybe they have friends and play board games. Maybe they play cards. So creating the culture and doing a lot of research on actual cultures and places where cannibalism is normal. Well, why is cannibalism normal in the real world? There are a couple of different reasons and ways that has, uh, has materialized and, you know, what, how does this affect people and how does this affect their opinions and their beliefs and their views of people? And how do I organize random crazy classes? And the answer is, well, you can either be a free person, you know, you work for yourself, you work for a gang or you're in a gang. Like those are kind of, or you're in a religious cult or you're a part of a family, like an actual group of people who's related as opposed to social structure based on utility. So when it comes to having all this fluff in the game, is it something that, you, that you've been writing so that you can kind of get the tone of the world across? Or is it something that you've also found is useful for helping people understand the mechanics of the game? Uh, it's largely to understand the, the world itself that I've created. So if you want to play in Atreus, you can. Or you can use these classes. You know, a lab assistant can fit into any sci-fi universe, a medical doctor or... You know, an accountant can fit into any sci-fi universe, uh, that sort of stuff. So it's largely geared toward explaining the, the world that I've personally crafted, though a lot of elements can be just pulled out and put into someone else's. The deities that we've created are kind of fun. Uh, worshiping darkness is interesting. Uh, I also made, I want to say something like 20 poisons that would be useful in a post-apocalyptic society. Also some, some monsters as well. Okay. And misfire charts for the firearms, because that's that's a lot of fun. <laughs> so we're just going to start wrapping up here, Travis. But we got uh, one last question for you before we let you go on with your day. No problem. If you had a time machine, and you can go back in time to when you were first starting to run the storytelling game, what's a piece of advice you'd give yourself about running the game? Hmm, interesting. Back in time to tell myself how to be a better storyteller... I would actually say start reading. The books that are out that are available um, through Drive-Thru RPG, you know, from Wizards, they're actually really well crafted. And I did not look at any of those books until the last maybe four or five years. Um, and I, I really regret that because they have some really creative ideas. And when you're looking in a monster manual, it explains how you can use that monster when you get something like a Volos or you know, it, it explains like the habitat of the monster, but it also has like cool grids and guides as to what their layers could look like. And it gives you the why and the what, you know, why does a mind flare look at us as food? What do they think about? But also the campaign books, because it, it's very similar and how they've crafted their world is very intelligently. Um, the Underdark of Out of the Abyss and how they portray madness in that book and how they create dramatic tension and foreshadowing and, and the use of nightmares and, and things like that to get players ready to encounter some larger demons and some of the more difficult monsters of the D&D &D world. 
that would be my advice. <laughs> Read more. Yeah, I think there's, I agree. I think that's something that I probably would have done as well. And I think there's, whatever it is you're trying to do as a DM, D&D and role-playing games have been around long enough that there's there's going to be at least one or two books out there, that are, or even just articles or pamphlets or whatever that'll help you get better at whatever aspect of DMing you're trying to do. For sure. Absolutely. All right. Travis, thank you so much for coming on the show. Is there anything you want to plug or where can people find you on the internet? Sure. Um, if you're interested in Liberty After, it's available on DriveThruRPG as Liberty After. You can find, also we've got a, a Liberty podcast. It's like 60 episodes long, three different storylines, one of which is the actual play, two of which are just fictional storylines set in the same universe. You can find that at, at uh, the Liberty podcast on your however you listen to podcasts or libertyendures.com is our website. And last but not least, uh, Dark Dice is our uh, D&D horror podcast, which you might enjoy if you're of the variety. It's got live hurdy-gurdy music throughout all of it. <laughs> so hopefully that's enjoyable. And lastly, Domain of the Nameless God will be available uh, probably within a month on Drive RPG. All right. Thank you, guys. Yeah, Thank thanks you. so much for coming on. Have a great day. You too. Our art is done by the wonderful Haley Boros. Our theme music is Overworld by Kevin McLeod. You can find us on social media at, at DMs of Vancouver and also on Facebook. Uh, you can find this podcast on Google Play, iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And if you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on iTunes and tell your friends about the show. Word of mouth really helps shows like ours grow and find an audience. And we're also part of the Cave Goblin Network. You can find our shows and many others at cavegoblins.com. And you can support us and the rest of the network at patreon.com slash cavegoblins. Doug Vandalay here for Comedy Zeitgeist on the Cave Goblin Network. Each week I sit down with a comedian to talk about their career and their comedic influences. Learn about your favorite comedians talking about their favorite comedians. That's Comedy Zeitgeist on the Cave Goblin Network. Hey there lovely listeners. I'm Talia Murdoch and I'm here to tell you about my show, Everything Economics. Every week I talk about the world around you, specific social and economic issues, and dive into how fantasy realms would work in real life. That's Everything Economics on the Cave Goblin Network. This is a Cave Goblin podcast. For other podcasts like this, visit cavegoblins.com. We hope you have enjoyed this program.